0: So we uh, started looking at Luke's Gospel. And um, actually, this is one of the most neglected passages because here's what happens. A lot of people start looking at the beginning of the Gospels. There's the birth narrative. Christmas is over. And they move on to something else. But right after Jesus is born, in Luke's Gospel alone only is this event that takes place in the temple. Mary and Joseph bring little baby Jesus 40 days after his birth uh, to be purified. And uh, that involved offering some sacrifices. um, And they run into two old saints, a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. And we are going to take a look at that event, all right? So, um, Luke 2, verse 21, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. So, according to Jewish law, uh, baby boys to be circumcised. Jesus was circumcised, like all other Jewish boys, um, Then, 40 days after the birth, there's this purification that the parents and the child go through. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, um, actually, the law says that you're supposed to offer a lamb. But if the couple is too poor to afford a lamb, they can substitute birds. So what does this tell you about Mary and Joseph? They're college students, right? (laughs) They're they're young, they're poor, so they can only afford uh, the birds. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Waiting for the consolation of Israel means he's waiting for God to comfort Israel. All right? And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The word Christ, remember, means Messiah. So the Holy Spirit reveals, you're not going to die, Simeon, until you see the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms... And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And think about that. He doesn't understand how it's all going to work, but he's holding in his arms God's salvation. He doesn't know all all the pieces But he knows this is the Messiah, and his eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. He can die in peace now. Okay? For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Now, interesting phrase here. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. So, uh Simeon is prophesying here. The Holy Spirit is allowing him to speak forth truth. And he says something that's a theme throughout Luke's writings. Gentiles are going to be included. Up to this point, it's been pretty much God working with the Jews. Now, the Gentiles are brought up. And uh, he prophesies that Jesus is not only the glory of Israel, but he's the revelation to the Gentiles. Okay? Now, we keep going. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Now, uh, up to this point, again, everything has been very positive. The Messiah is here. Now we see the dark lining of the cloud. He prophesies the downside. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now we're going to come back and kind of zero in on these two verses. But, but let me bring in Anna. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping Uh, with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, nothing is recorded about what she says, but the point is this. The parents bring the baby to the temple, and two well-known aging saints point out that this is a special child. That's, that's what we're to get out of this. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. So they go back up north. Right? Now, I'm going to focus in on these words of Simeon. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel now that's not referring to the financial falling or rising or the political falling or rising or the military falling or rising it has to be talking spiritually eternally what what this is saying is how one responds to this child Jesus determines their eternal destiny He is appointed for the fall and rise of many. And for a sign that is opposed. Not everybody's going to like him. Not everybody's going to follow him. He will be opposed. Now, speaking of opposition, Mary. Okay, so he's talking to Mary, his mother and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So as Jesus is opposed and persecuted, imagine the pain of the mother. But then we know that at the foot of the cross, who was there? Mary. Imagine seeing your own son tortured to death. A bloody mess. So she, I, I'm, I'm sure she doesn't understand it all, but Simeon, is, as a prophet, is speaking the truth. Your own heart, your own soul will be pierced. Okay? Now, as Jesus is opposed, you know what that's going to do? It's going to reveal the thoughts of people's hearts so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. One's response to Jesus reveals the condition of your heart. Now, what, what does accepting or rejecting Jesus reveal about the thoughts of your heart? Well, what this tells you is that Your thoughts about Jesus are not primarily intellectual. Your thoughts about Jesus are a reflection of the morality of your heart. Now, people can come up with lots of intellectual arguments and and reasons for rejecting Christ. But really, all those reasons are is justifications for, for, uh, for wanting to reject Him so you can do what you want to do and not follow Him. In other words, the ultimate reason why people reject Jesus is they would rather sin than submit to Him. Now, there's plenty of books you can buy out there that will give you lots of philosophies and different, relig- uh, different ideas about religion and ways to discredit the Bible and ways to discredit the existence of God. And uh, Some people devote their entire lives to rejecting Christianity and defending their rejection. But what, what this is telling you is the real motive is they don't want to submit to God. Jesus said this, in John 3.19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's a moral word. It's not an intellectual word. What, what this is saying is Jesus' existence and his words are a light that shines in the darkness. Repentant sinners who see their condition before God, repentant sinners will run to the light. Those who don't want to be forgiven, those who don't want to repent, will repel the light. They will try to snuff out the light. They will try to destroy the light. Anybody know who Aldous Huxley is? He wrote a book, you get a cup of coffee if you can tell me. What's the name of the book? Brave New World, right? Aldix Huxley, he was an atheist. And at the end of his life, he wrote this. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had not and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for, that, for this assumption. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Hey, I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do sexually. Therefore, I needed to get rid of God. So I found all kinds of justifications to justify my heart. He just comes right out and says it. okay? Um, interesting. He died November 22nd, 1963. The same day, so he was the most prolific uh, atheist writer, that same day, C.S. Lewis died, the most prolific Christian writer. They both died on the same day. But hardly anybody knew about it because somebody else died that day. Do you know who? John F. Kennedy, right? Um, There's actually a book written by a uh, a philosopher um, that pictures the three of them, uh, their souls on their way to judgment, having a discussion. An atheist, uh, C.S. Lewis, and John F. Kennedy, okay? But well, I bring that up to sneak C.S. Lewis in, but we're going to do that in just a second, okay? But here's what I want to do Simeon says, This baby is the salvation of the world. Your response to him reveals what's in your heart. So I want to look at three things Jesus said that, that pushed people to respond. And their response. In, in most cases, was very negative. It revealed the thoughts of their heart. Now, there were those who responded positively. Hopefully, that's your response. But let's look at three things he said that revealed the condition of people's hearts. Right. Mark 2.11, I say to you, to, a, to a, a, a paralyzed man, I say to you, Rise! pick up your bed and go home. That revealed the condition of people's hearts. You go, why? Well, Jesus was in Capernaum teaching in a house, probably Peter's house, and it was so crowded that nobody could get to him, and there was a man who was paralyzed who wanted to be healed. So his friends go up on the roof, and they clear away the the, the thatched roof, and they lower him down right bef- right in front of Jesus. And everybody's thinking, oh good, he's going to heal him. And what comes out of Jesus' mouth is, your sins are forgiven. And you can, you can almost just hear this big sigh of disappointment. Oh, we were hoping for a healing. And then the Pharisees get upset. right? Now some of the scribes are there, the scribes, uh, were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Ooh, their hearts are going to be revealed. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So uh, his statement to the man, your sins are forgiven, creates in them an allergic reaction. He's a blasphemer. Only God can forgive sins. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, he asks a very important question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, you might think, The answer would be, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. No, 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 no. You see, the the scribes and the Pharisees were right. Only God can forgive sins. So it's harder to say your sins are forgiven because that's something only God can do. So the harder thing is to say your sins are forgiven. But here's here's the logic. Jesus is going to do this. He's going to say the harder thing... And the invisible thing is to say your sins are forgiven. But to show you that I am God and I can forgive sins, I'll do the easier visible thing. Take up your bed and walk. Right. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, that I am God. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and walk. Go home. This wasn't just a healing; this was a declaration of his deity, and the crowd was split. Their hearts were revealed. Now I mentioned C.S. Lewis. I think once a year this quote needs to be read. <laughs> so today, I think I don't think I've read it this year, but uh, the famous liar, lunatic, Lord argument that that C.S. Lewis gives. Uh, and by, by the way, the, the first category here of that which divides people is Jesus' claim that he is God. There are those who are fine with him being a, uh, a nice, moral teacher. A, a teacher of morality. You know, Gandhi's fine. Mr. Rogers is fine. Jesus, the human teacher, is fine. But wait a minute, now if you start calling him God, people aren't fine. Why? Because of Jesus, who is God, is terrifying. He's not only the teacher of moral things, he is the judge of your soul. And who wants a judge? So here's what C.S. Lewis said. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. All right. Simeon says this little baby determines the rising and falling of souls. First, first thing that Jesus made clear is, I'm God. And People don't like that. A lot of people uh, spend their lives studying the Bible, quoting Jesus, but they do not accept him as God. He didn't allow that option. All right. Let me give you a second thing, and I'm going to skip a couple verses here. Second thing, he said, that divides and disturbs people. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is claiming to be the only way to be saved. Now, today... Tell people that Jesus is your Savior and they'll say, I'm happy for you. Good for you. Tell him he is the Savior, the only Savior. You know what they're going to do? They're going to say, how arrogant. How judgmental. How unfair. And and you you might want to come back and say, I'm not just saying this. Jesus said, No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you quote this verse, inevitably you're going to get the question, what about the guy on the island who's never heard the gospel? How fair is it for him if God sends him to hell? And you know what? I think that that is a legitimate question. How would you answer the question about the guy on the island? In fact, uh, I was in a Bible study, and this issue came up. And somebody asked, do you think there there is really an island where there are people who have never heard the gospel? And I said, yeah, in the Indian Ocean, there is a a well-known island, a sentinel island, that has two dozen people on it who are tribal They've never been touched by civilization. And anybody who has tried to, to go there, fishermen or missionaries, have been killed. So we talked about that. The very next day in the news, did you hear about the guy who tried to go to that island? The missionary? What happened to him? They killed him. Yeah. All right. What about those people? All right. Will God send people to hell because they were geographically unfortunate? Talk amongst yourselves. No. Um. <laughs> so so here's, uh, here's my response. Response number one is not really a full answer, but it, I, I think it needs to be said. By 62 A.D., The Apostle Paul wrote this The gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Thirty years after the coming of Christ, Paul could say, The whole world is bearing the fruit of the gospel. Now, I don't think he's saying every single person on every single island has heard the gospel. I really highly doubt that the uh, American and Mexican Indians had heard the gospel. Though if you're a Mormon, they say Jesus made a trip over there, but we're not Mormon. Okay. The point is this. Christians From the minute Jesus ascended into heaven, Christians have been commissioned to not just sit here, but to actively penetrate the world with the gospel. That's what the book of Acts is about. The gospel spreading throughout the Roman world to the point that 30 years later, Paul could use universal language like this. Okay, That's why even this little church, we support people, who are in Togo, Africa, who are in Tanzania, Africa, who are in South Asia, and they have given their lives to take the gospel to, to people who may not have heard the gospel. So the, the first point is, is this. Christians aren't just walking around saying, Christ is the only way, Nah, 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 nah they are giving money and giving their lives to spread the gospel all over. But that doesn't answer the question. What about the guy on the island who's never heard? Now, here's where you go, hey, pastor, sometimes you bring up that whole Calvin Arminian thing. What practical use is that? It's just a theological argument. Well, actually, as a... Calvinist I can rest confident that every heart that desires to know and find the true God will hear and receive the gospel. I can have absolute confidence that every heart that desires to know the true God God will get the gospel to them. How can I know that? Because anybody who desires to know the true, the true God has been given that desire by God, and God promises that they won't slip through the cracks. Where's that promise? John 3, 37, And all that the Father gives me will come to me. We will come to Christ. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, um, How might he get the gospel to them? Well, there's missionaries. You know, in the the first two chapters of Luke, we've read about angels and dreams and visions. Okay? I, I think between missionaries, angels, dreams, visions, no one slips through the cracks. Now, I have to be really careful here because... While God can use angels, dreams, and visions, the command is for us, humans, Christians, to go in person to spread the gospel. In fact, there's a rather interesting um, passage in Acts. We've been studying Acts in a group. And an angel appears to a guy... uh, Named Cornelius, who lives in uh, Caesarea on the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea, an angel appears to him, and the angel doesn't share the gospel with him. The angel says, "What you need to do, Cornelius, is send. Some, he was a centurion. Send some of your troops down to Joppa. There's a guy named Peter, named Simon, there." Send for him, bring him back, listen to what he has to say. And Peter goes and preaches the gospel, and Cornelius gets saved. Now, when Peter is retelling the story, look what it says. Uh, and, And he, so Peter's talking here, and he, Cornelius, told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now, why do I share that? To say this, while God can use angels, dreams, and visions, he didn't hear. He used the angel to wake up Cornelius to send for Peter, and Peter the missionary went and told him, and that needs to be our mentality. We're to to pull out the map and say, Where isn't the gospel being proclaimed? Let's go there. Will God send people to hell because they don't hear? My answer is nobody slips through the cracks who desires to know the true God. But I think we need to take seriously the very divisive words of Jesus. No one comes to the Father except Through me. Okay? Some of you are struggling with that. We can talk about that in connection time. All right. One more thing, one last thing Jesus said that that reveal revealed the hearts of the listeners. And he, the prodigal son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, the backstory is this. This son is a real low life. He He's got, a, he's got an older brother who's working in the farm, but he goes to his dad and says, basically, drop dead. I don't have anything to do with you. I want my inheritance now. And the father actually liquidates and gives him his inheritance. And this guy goes off and he lives a sinful lifestyle to the point where he spent it all And he's working on a pig farm. And he says, you know, it's better off back home working as a hired hand than working here. And he repents, and he turns and he goes back. Now, Jesus told this story for a reason. His audience is not primarily the receptive disciples but the critical, judgmental Pharisees. In fact, here's the setting. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Jesus is being criticized for having sinner friends. We are the holy ones, the Pharisees said. We don't hang out with that kind of riffraff. And, and who does he think he is? So Jesus tells this parable. And the point is not, isn't this a wonderful story? The point is, the heart of the Father in this story is the heart of of God who eats with sinners, who loves sinners. And they had to be offended. But he doesn't stop. He goes on to talk about the older brother. And he's saying, you Pharisees who are judging me for eating with sinners, You are like the older brother in this story. You're like the older brother who hates grace. You see, Christ came to proclaim that he's God, to proclaim he's the only way, and to proclaim grace. And one thing that that ticks off Pharisees is grace. They do not like it. So, let's, let's do this. Can I give you the older brother test? Because I think, I think some of us are, are more like the older brother than the prodigal son. All right, So, here's the older brother test. The younger brother comes home. The father runs to him. He embraces him. He puts a ring on his finger. He kills the fatted calf. Should I tell my joke? Who is the most upset person in the story of the prodigal son? The fatted calf. Right. (laughs) He got killed, okay? All right. Do I have to diagram this out, people? Okay. All right, so... So, what's the brother's reaction? One of the servants says, Hey, your brother's back and we're having a party. But he was angry and refused to go in. Legalistic older brothers have an anger issue. Now, they couch it. In being angry at sin. Right? But there's something deeper going on here. In older brothers. While they may sing about grace. And be able to talk about grace. And be able to recite the five solas. That you're saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Based on the authority of scripture alone. For the glory of God alone. They're all about. They know the words of grace. Deep inside they're angry. Why? Because they've been living by the rules. And others aren't living by the rules. And they're angry, ultimately, at God. Because he's letting people off the hook, and I have to do all this work. So here's a question. Does anger more than joy characterize your heart? Does anger more than joy characterize your heart? You might be an older brother. The father goes out and tries to talk to him. And he says, look, these many years I have served you. The NIV says, these many years I've slaved for you. Woo! Older brothers are duty-driven. Aren't there duties in the Christian life, though? Yeah, there's duties. But let me ask you this. Is God more glorified when we are duty-driven or delight-drawn? Is God glorified by a bunch of duty-driven Christians who are doing it because they have to? Or because in their hearts they love him and they want to. So here's a question for you Are are you more duty driven than delight drawn? Are you more duty driven than delight drawn? How about this one? I never disobeyed your command. Older brothers are self deluded about their own obedience. So what they love to do is focus on the disobedience of others. Because that heightens their sense that they're the ones who are doing it right. Okay. You know, there's a number of discernment blogs out there that are always pointing out, this church did this, and this pastor did this, and this author said this. And, and I, you know, there, there needs to be discernment. But when you read the comments, there there almost seems to be a glee when another church falls or somebody makes a heretical statement. And there's this self-righteous joy that some Christians take in the failure of others. And what comes across is I never disobey, like all those others who, who are heretics and sinners. So, question. Am I pretty obedient compared to everybody else? Am I, am I the righteous one? Then, he says this to his dad. You never gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. You give, you give my brother half the farm, and you never even gave me a young goat. And, and the father responds... And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Older brother Christians are usually ungrateful for all they have in Christ and are focused on what they think they deserve. There's a a discontentment. They think God owes them. They feel like they've been ripped off. So here's a question. Do you think you deserve better from God? Better than this? Do you think you deserve better from God? So, Jesus tells this simple, beloved parable of the prodigal son and the older brother. And you can bet the response of the Pharisees and the scribes was fury. I might be an older brother if I'm more about anger than joy. I'm more duty-driven than delight-drawn. I'm pretty obedient compared to other Christians. I think I deserve better from God. What's the key to not being an older brother? Well, let's, let's go back to when he said, I never disobeyed your command. Older brothers see their condition before God is, as, as perfect. I'm pretty righteous. Now, there was an older brother named Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul and he was evaluating him, his, his previous life before he came to Christ and he said, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I was blameless. Until he met Christ. Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Before, my my law-keeping, I saw it as blameless. Now I see it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here's the key, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, if you detect an older brother in yourself, you know what you need to do? You need to come face to face with Jesus and see how far short you fall. But then, remember Simeon holding little baby Jesus says, this is your salvation, God's salvation. How is Jesus your salvation? By paying for your failure and your debt and your sin and living a perfect life. And by faith, when you place your faith in him, you stop trusting in your own perfection, you stop trusting in your own righteousness, and you place your faith in him, his righteousness is given to you. And now, you're not an older brother. You're the prodigal son. You see how filthy you are. You come to the Father. He embraces you. He puts that robe of righteousness around you. You're forgiven. You have all the riches in Christ. So as we enter into this new year, I want to encourage us to to drop the older brother routine, to humbly come to Christ and let Him put that robe of righteousness on us. Stop trusting in ourselves and trust completely in Him. Let's pray. Lord, again, this Christmas season, we we praise You that You left the glories of heaven, came to earth, came that little baby, grew up, died on the cross to pay for our sin. You lived a perfect life to give us a record of perfect righteousness. Lord, we all have older brother tendencies to want to look to ourselves, to be indignant at others. But Lord, I pray you would humble us. Pray that we would place our confidence totally in you, and may you receive all the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.